Hello, I'm your host, Vlad Yunusov. This episode is supported by my law practice. Once in a while, I record the show for you. I love it, but my day job is commercial litigation, and I've been doing it for 12 years. I'd like you to know that your referrals are safe with me. You can find my contact information on my website at lotzio.ca. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of the Unisoc question, and I'm very excited to welcome Eva Krajewska to the show, partner, Hannon Hutchison, LLP. Hello, Eva. Hi, Palat. Nice to see you. It's very nice to see you. I really appreciate you coming to the show. You uh, have seen uh, uh, episodes of my show before, so you know that I really like to dig into the roots and stuff. So with you in particular, because uh, you come from Eastern Europe, which is the region that is uh, dear to me, let's talk about your birthplace. Sure. Um, so I was, I was born in Poland, in Warsaw, and I think that informs a lot about me and what I do today sometimes. I was born under martial law in Poland after uh, you know, Solidarity tried to rise up in the 80s and then Jaruzelski brought in the army. Some people may argue he maybe brought in the army himself because he was afraid that otherwise Gorbachev would have. That's maybe a bit of revisionist history, but I was born under martial law in Poland and in 1986, my parents decided to leave Poland because they never thought that communism would end for another hundred years. And they came to Canada. And um, I think you know, they were looking to leave and Canada was one of the places that my dad got a position as a researcher at Sunnybrook Hospital in Heart and Stroke. And then my mom and me followed suit shortly thereafter. and. You know, they, my parents were young professionals. They were very patriotic. Uh, my dad finished his medical degree in Poland. My mom finished her law degree in Poland. And then like lots of places in Europe, the best students got appointed straight to the bench. So it was very difficult, different than in Canada where you only get appointed to the bench after like decades of practice and mentorship and guidance. My mom was a judge. Um, and they left that all behind because they were not sure about the future in Poland and the future for me and themselves. Um, so that's kind of my, in a nutshell, my background. At what age did you come to Canada? I was four years old, so I had never, I hadn't gone to school in Poland. Uh, and my parents sent me to, a, at first, an English school in Toronto, and then they were really under this impression that Canada was a bilingual country and that I had to learn French. They figured that I would learn English because by the fact of living in Toronto. So when I was six, after just having learned English, they sent me to a French school so that I would learn French. Um, I, I don't remember a lot of that time of my childhood. Uh, my parents recall that it was very difficult for me, at least the first four months in the French school. And then at some point I just got it and I absorbed it and I learned French and I was, I was fine, but they, 
definitely tell me that there were moments where they really questioned their decision to send me to a French school. But I'm very, very grateful to them for having sent me to a French school because I don't think I would have probably enjoyed McGill Law as much as I did uh, having not spoken French. And maybe I wouldn't have been able to have clerked at the Supreme Court of Canada had I not been bilingual. So I think they made the right choices, even though they doubted themselves at that time. Do you practice law in French? Uh, I, I have, I haven't, like not probably to the full extent that I could have. I've definitely, I read factums in French, I read evidence in French, I've spoken to clients in French, but I've never actually had the chance to represent a client in court in French. Um, but, you know, I, there's just, I don't think there's that much uh, French practice actually in Toronto and where there is, there are, you know, there are fully francophone lawyers who do that in Toronto, like my partner, Christine Mainville, who does appeals in French. You will not believe it, but I'm uh, looking at Christine's photo right now because I've been thinking about Christine as you were talking about not so many French cases. And I thought, okay, and Christine is probably doing all of them. <laughs> so uh, we also learned about Christine, of course, uh, from Danielle Robitaille. Uh, uh, in her interview for this show. And then I met Christine in person. What a wonderful uh, lawyer she is. And uh, as you said, fully um, uh, uh, French, um, uh, competent and conversant and practicing law in French in Toronto. So this is very special. And she's also a partner at your firm, Hannah Hutchinson LLP. So I'm really interested. Did you speak Polish uh, growing up with your parents at home? Yes, uh, I still speak, I still speak Polish with my parents. So my parents insisted that I speak Polish with them. Um, I was not really allowed to respond to them in English or speak to them in English. And I still speak Polish with them now. Although, you know, when people ask, you know, those surveys and questions and all types of things, they ask you, what's your mother tongue? And that's hard for me because my brain thinks in English, like the thoughts going through my head are happening in English. Uh, I read, write, speak English on a daily basis. I can read Polish, but I don't, I can't write in Polish, not with the help of, you know, the technology today that suggests the correct spelling of words for you. Um, so yeah, I, Polish is definitely very much still part of my life, but uh, I never had the chance to speak uh, to go to school in, in Polish. And part of that was because my parents lived downtown in Toronto and they attempted to send me to after school programs uh, in Polish, but they were all in the suburbs and it was a very long commute. And I think it was, it was just a bit too much. Where in Toronto did you grow up? So this is its own little story. Uh, at first, my parents lived at 35 Charles Street, which is a building uh, associated with the University of Toronto that is subsidized housing and it's all my parents could afford at the beginning. And then after my dad was no longer a fellow with the University of Toronto, uh, we had to leave 35 Charles. Um, and there was a building down the street at 57 Charles where the superintendent was Polish. And so there was a small diaspora of Polish families who all lived in the same apartment building at 57 Charles Street. 
Um, and that is where I made my best friends. That's where my parents made their best friends. And uh, it was kind of a little unique community and universe. So I, I'm not a Polish person who grew up on Roncesvalles or in Mississauga. Uh, I'm a person who wrote, wrote, grew up on, on, on Charles Street, which now is a very kind of, you know, elite upper class uh, part of the city, but that was not always the case. You clerked for uh, Rosalia Bella. And I think not a lot of people know that Rosalia Bella's parent, well, she was born in Germany at the displaced persons camp after the war. But I don't think a lot of people know that her parents are from Poland. Her parents are from Poland, yes. Was Polish or is Polish her first language? Did she speak Polish growing up, do you know? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, her dad did his law degree at Jagiellonica University in Krakow. And yes. um, the, she had in her, she always carried in her office um, her dad's diploma from Jagiellonica. That was something that was very close to her heart because her dad was not able to practice law in Canada. Um, and that was one of the reasons that she always says that she decided she wanted to be become a lawyer because he was not able to do so. Um, so yeah, her family, uh, her family is originally uh, is originally from Poland. And that was something that we kind of connected on during my uh, clerkship interview. You know, I have to an admission to me because I was researching you. I fell into the rabbit hole of watching Rosalia Bella videos. So I uh, watched her interview with Steve Baking, who is one of my favorite interviewers. And I also saw some of the 1988 uh, debate with Mulroney and other candidates, the political debate. And she was the moderator at that debate. And I thought she could easily be an actress. She's so good looking. And uh, I guess the Canadian legal system is lucky that she decided to be a lawyer because she could be a magnificent actress. Just an aside from a fan. Anyway. So uh, it's, it's really interesting that you grew up with a Polish, in a Polish-speaking neighborhood. I'm sorry, family, household, and neighborhood, because you know the, the house, the building was uh, with a lot of Poles in it. What instilled the love for the English language uh, for you? Because I don't think you choose to be a lawyer unless you love the English language in Canada or the French, but here in this particular context, English. Did you read a lot of books in English? How does an immigrant child who has to speak Polish at home become a proficient and elite English speaking lawyer in Canada? Interesting. I don't, so I don't, I'm not sure. I did read a lot. I liked reading. I liked reading, especially issues around current affairs. Um, and, you know, I read a lot in English and in French. I don't know if it was really the love of language that led me to be a lawyer, but I think it was more the, I, I don't know, Pilat, if you have the same feeling coming from Eastern Europe, but discussing politics and public policy is not something that Eastern Europeans shy away from. 
And whether it's at the dinner table or with friends or otherwise, Polish people are not the type to just want to discuss the weather or do small talk. I think Polish people are the type of people who very quickly bear their heart to you or their politics to you on all types of issues. And I think it was that context and those circumstances that led me to want to go to law school, which is I was very interested in <clears throat> policy debates, legal issues, how things are framed, how things are decided, who decides them, who's in power, um, all of those things, I think. I mean, in undergrad, I studied economics, political science, and history. I kind of loved the social sciences. And in a sense, law is very much a social science. And I think it's all of that that really drew me into the law and probably informs a lot of my perspective on how I practice law today. I'm very familiar with uh, politics at home and with politics discussions at home. Uh, in my case, I think it happened in the kitchen, usually using whispers, but uh, sometimes <laughs> screams and uh, a loud voice. Uh, but I definitely understand where you're coming from. I uh, understand the connection between the, your exposure to uh, political thought or political hobby, politics as a hobby at home, and then McGill, where you studied economics, political science, and history. Did you know, like, did you know that the childhood experience was doomed to set your career path for the rest of your life that you had to do something with politics or with social science did you absolutely know that uh, in mcgill or before uh, when you applied to mcgill i think I, yeah i think i always i think i always felt that um i think my parents as immigrants wanted me more than anything to ensure that I had a stable source of income. I think they would have preferred that I become a doctor. They probably would have preferred that I study the sciences. Social sciences were kind of a... This is what I was getting at because <laughs> I, I, I expected some sort of science uh, pressure. There was know, and I didn't I didn't hear anything about it. So I was getting to... <laughs> yeah, there was definitely a... There was definitely a science there was definitely a science pressure but it wasn't it wasn't because science was better or more rigorous it was more of i think immigrant parents are legitimately always concerned that their kids will do well that they made the right choices and their kids will be safe and secure both kind of politically and economically and so they my mom i think my mom maybe even more than my dad always felt that i should become a doctor my dad's a doctor. My dad redid all of his training once he came to Canada, redid his residency and became a doctor. Um, my mom did not become a lawyer again. Instead, she became an immigration consultant. So now she helps other people come to Canada. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. My, my brother actually has become a doctor. Um, and he, but I think he didn't, he didn't have like political or po public policy inclinations. Like he, he would take my advice on that. He will, he will come to me for guidance on those issues. But he, like, even though, you know, it's interesting siblings, right? Or children where you come from the same household and yet you take different 
life paths. And he he was not interested in the political debates or public policy debates we were having at the at the dinner table. That did not um, that did not tug at his heart in any way. So, but you know, it's it's fine. We still get along really well. <laughs> I want lawyers and judges who are watching this to be patient with my next question because a lot of law students also watch the show. So I want to ask you about law school. You went to McGill. I don't think it's an easy law school to go to. I don't think that law schools in general are easy experiences. But you obviously had very good grades. I'm not going to ask you to show your transcript on the air. You know, we'll skip that part, but let's assume that someone who summered at White and Case in New York, someone who clerked for Justice Abel at the Supreme Court, someone who was uh, became partner at Bill G, let's assume that they had an excellent academic record. You were a child of immigrants. I don't think you had any people who were born in Canada in your immediate household or immediate circle of friends or and neither did your parents yes your mom was a lawyer in poland but i don't think she knew much about canadian law schools i don't think she knew much about canadian law school exams so one of the themes of my show is we're trying to help law students do better and as someone who didn't know much about canadian law schools how did you manage to be an excellent student in law school my personal experience in law school was that it is not enough to uh, bring your previous skills. It's not enough. It was law school exams and law school grading are a completely different beast. And what really helps is if someone on the side prepares you or trains you or gives you some tips, you know, there are whole books, bookshelves of books about how to get A's in law school. How did you manage to do it? I think that I think that's all uh, very true, Pulat. I mean, I didn't have somebody on the inside to kind of guide me, or someone in my immediate circle who knew how to how to do these things. And you're right that like a lot of you know a lot of the how I succeeded in high school, or you know even how I prepared for economics exams versus poli sci exams, um, it wasn't perfectly transferable to law school. And I know in law school, everybody said, you need to have a good summary. You need to have a summary, you know, like your hundred page summary of all the torts cases, your hundred page summary of the constitutional cases. And I think in part, my success came from talking to third year students. McGill was quite good in terms of, you had small groups that were run by third year students for first year students, both in foundations and in legal methodology. And I had a great tutorial leader in legal methodology. Her name is Michelle Dean. She was a great lawyer who worked at Wayne Case and now she's uh, a writer and a, a screenwriter in, in the United States. And she's just amazing. But she kind of suggested to all of us, um, what you really need is like a three or four pages of like a question and then an answer. Like, what is the test for an infringement of freedom of expression? And then like the test is this with the case. So she gave us kind of her template for that for constitutional law. And she said, this was really useful to me for exams because the 90 page summary of every single case 
is great and maybe a process that you need to go through, but for the exam, it's too big to and, and not quick enough to get to the right answer. So what you need is this smaller thing. And I used that and it was very successful for me. I don't know if it will be successful for everybody, but I think having those relationships with third year students who have done well um, and asking them what tools they used is really helpful. I also love doing study groups. I know some people hate study groups, but I liked to find the people in the class who were maybe who I thought brought different skills, who looked like they did the readings and who looked like they weren't uh, obnoxiously opinionated. And I would just create a study group and say like, let's meet together and talk about these things. Uh, so I think trying to create also kind of a nice collegial atmosphere with people that you get along with and trying to learn together is also really helpful. They look like they did the readings. Is this how you hire associates? <laughs> how do you how do you hire lawyers what is your approach where you have a part of hiring decisions or hiring committees or committees that uh, gave offers to articling students and so on and so forth yes i mean both at, at bog i had i was on the student committee for several years and now i'm Hen and hutchison because we're smaller, like the, the partners are just involved in the hiring committees and, and all the hiring decisions and the interviews. Um, and, you know, it is, I think hiring in law is, uh, is difficult. I, I think, uh, I worry a lot and I have been critical in the past that the typical interview process of just asking people about their interests and doing small talk is not really a great way of interviewing people. I mean, it may be fine for summer students and then you see the summer students work and you see how they approach problems and you see how they get things done. But I find it strange that the, sta the standard, so-called in law, in law, is to do these kind of uh, unbenchmarked interviews, right? I, I think it does a disservice for the firm and I think it does a disservice for the students. Um, I think like, so at Hen and Hutchison, we have Rose Yanko who does all the first year, all the first interviews. And she has a very standard practice. She asks the same interviews to all the candidates. And so I really kind of admire that. She has a rigorous process where she does the first interview. And then we do the second interview. And I think we always try to probe a little bit further. Um, I think we probe for, you know, I, I often ask, like to ask the question, you know, people create resumes of accomplishments. What about a resume of regrets? Like, what do you regret not doing? Um, I like, we now like to ask for, we, I like to ask for a writing sample. And we sometimes like to ask for a very quick case comment on a case like a very quick 500 words on a case, because I think it sometimes just really reveals how people see the law, how people read a case, what their impressions are. So I, I like to have things that are maybe a bit more standardized because I think it's just more fair to the, to the students. I know it sounds like it's tedious and a lot of work, but I, I think it hopefully moves to a, a better process. You know, if someone makes a movie about me when I die, I hope they don't call it a resume of regret. <laughs> oh, no. 
<laughs> I really love that expression. It's just just a gem. Thank you for sharing. Can I use it? Yeah, you can use it. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. So BLG, uh, I know what you did at BLG, or I think I know what you did at BLG. Litigation, broad litigation practice. You gradually built your litigation practice. I'm sure you did a lot of bread and butter commercial litigation. But did you do any insurance uh, litigation, by the way? I did a little bit in the medical malpractice context, but not, okay. not other personal injury. Okay. But I think what you're known for today is public and constitutional litigation. And I know that a lot of this is pro bono, a lot of this is low bono, but it's, it's very important to work for Canada. It's important to work for our legal system. Please talk about building a public or constitutional litigation at a level where it is taking a lot of your resources and not necessarily compensating you at the same rate as other litigation and where you are part of a traditional firm, which expects, of course, certain metrics. Okay, so I think that's a really interesting question. It's one that younger associates or law students often ask me is how do you build kind of a public law or constitutional law practice in private practice? Because you know, many people, if they want to, if you, and I'll be honest, if you want to do exclusively public or constitutional law, then you need to work for the government. Or in some cases, you have to do criminal defense as well, right? A lot of constitutional issues come up in criminal defense work. But from a pure, like, you know, if people think of the, the charter, then, you know, AG, AG constitutional law branch in Ontario, uh, the federal government more broadly um but on the on the private side it can never be your full practice i think that's unrealistic but you can build it to be part of your practice so you know i was lucky in the sense that i got recruited to blg by chris brett who had a public law practice because Dennis O'Connor had had one and it was kind of part of the ethos at BLG that this is something that lawyers at BLG did. And Chris just said, well, you know, you gotta like, you gotta, you gotta write in the, in the area, you gotta join organizations that do this, that where like-minded lawyers are found. So I joined the Ontario Bar Association's constitutional and civil law section. Um, I, I wrote papers or I co-authored them with Chris and also you got to do some intervention work, right? You got to do some intervention work for, so I did intervention work for the CCLA and I still do, uh, for other organizations like HALCO, uh, the HIV AIDS Legal Clinic Ontario, ISAC, the Income Security Action Clinic, uh, all of these, this type of work. And then I think you also have to look at areas or industries that are kind of adjacent to constitutional law where it comes up. So like maybe I'm not the best example of this, but like if you think about Justice Rulo before he was appointed to the bench, a lot of the, his clients were school boards and he did a lot of work in the education sector. And then from that, he did 
uh, language rights litigation around Section 23 of the Charter, right? So that, like, so that was a very nice kind of synchronicity between um, his one client base with his kind of constitutional practice. And I had, you know, I've had that as well, or I've, I've worked, I've, uh, I think a lot of the regulatory areas, whether it's energy litigation, uh, education law, health law, a lot of them give rise to lots of public law matters. So those are kind of, that's how I see it. You have to, you have to try to, if you're good at writing, write papers, offer to present the papers at conferences, join sections of the OBA or the Advocate Society that are doing, where like-minded people are doing constitutional work. Reach out to public interest groups that are interested in doing intervention work on important, in important legal cases and start to develop relationships with them and um, you know, do, do work for them. And then, you know, and then you, you also, you also get paid work in this area, especially if you're representing clients that are highly regulated clients, including corporations where the, where the regular regulatory landscape is often changing because it's an area that's uh, political or it's an area that's important or otherwise. And so like most recently, I think I, I did a lot of the public law that I've done recently has been in the context of COVID, right? Like the COVID pandemic led to the declaration of emergency legislation, uh, emergency declarations. And I just, I think part of it was just like, maybe my parents were right, I should have become a doctor and I would have been much more helpful during COVID. <laughs> So I was like, well, I want to be helpful, and all I have are these legal skills, so I'm going to become an expert on all these emergency measures, and I'm going to tweet about it, I'm going to write about it, I'm going to podcast about it, um, because I want, to feel, I want to feel helpful and useful. And that, you know, that leads to work, and that led to me doing the first ever Zoom hearing, um, challenging a uh, one of the restrictions on visitor policies at a hospital, right? So that this is sometimes it's also just being really honest with yourself about what you are passionate about, and then leveraging that passion to um, to do work in it because you're gonna really enjoy the work, and you're gonna feel like you're making a difference. I think it also helps if you clerk at the Supreme Court. That uh, immediately adds cachet and that uh, helps uh, blaze the path in public and constitutional litigation. You know what, uh, who I also thought of when you, when you mentioned the Dennis O'Connor team at BLG? Barry Glaspell, a guest of the show. He was on uh, Dennis O'Connor's team at BLG. And uh, we talked about uh, that with... Uh, Barry in his interview. Also, when you uh, talked about building your public and constitutional practice, another name that comes to mind is Ranjana Garwal, who uh, was, uh, of course, partner at Bennett Jones until his recent appointment to the Superior Court of Ontario. And he also was uh, a guest of my show. And he is known for building a public constitutional practice at his firm. So it's, it's interesting how there are these people like you, key people, I think, in the public and constitutional bar that are basically the ones that build it at the firm. They're almost like the point person at the firm uh, to go uh, to with public and constitutional questions. So uh, it's really interesting uh, when we think about these people. 
I have a question for you that has to do with psychology, that has to do with why people do what they do. And you mentioned criminal lawyers as someone who does a lot of constitutional law. When I think about criminal lawyers, and I know that you spend a lot of time with criminal lawyers now, right? Hannon Hutchison, so uh, a lot of criminal lawyers. But when I think about criminal lawyers, to me, to become a successful criminal lawyer, you have to be paranoid. You have to be neurotic. You have to be constantly worried about the government. And when I think about the state of mind, I can't help thinking about Eastern Europe. So to me, there is a connection there. You're not a criminal lawyer. You might do some criminal work, but you're largely a civil lawyer. But you told me that one of the roots of your interest in law is the history of your family that experienced government oppression. I think that criminal lawyers, even criminal lawyers who were born here in Canada and grew up in a, you know, green, uh, greenhouse setting, who have no idea actually what uh, government oppression is in some countries uh, and to what extent it can rise, they still have this degree of paranoia about the government that drives them to challenge the government and take on these constitutional cases. The government is always on the other side. Do you think this theory and description rings true or do you want to dispute it a little bit? Yeah, so I, I mean, I might dispute it a little bit. I'm not sure if I'm as paranoid about the government. I like, I think, um, I think in terms of, I mean, I probably have a lot of healthy skepticism about where some policies come from, but I think my drive around this stuff really comes from, I think a more idealized idea of wanting to make things better. This idea that public policy can improve people's lives. And maybe even an idealized, and I'm, I'm very cognizant of this, like, you know, you know, this idea of the charter changing people's lives, I think is also sometimes a very dangerous idea. You need to make sure that you have kind of public opinion on, uh, like, also on board with some of the changes, right? I don't, I think there's a, you know, how much, how much can the courts help you versus um, how much do you also need to ensure that public policy and opinion changes at the same time? But I think mo most of, because I've also, in a lot of constitutional litigation, also acted for actually the respondent. Like I've acted for the Leaders Debate Commission. I've acted for the Chief Electoral Officer of Canada. I've acted for Trillium Gift of Life, defending their policies. And so I, I don't, so or their policies or their decisions. And so I actually also have quite a bit of empathy for decision makers in terms of how they get to those decisions. And I think a lot of the law in this area is also just trying to get decision makers to be more transparent, more rational and more, um, more, 
and, and better justify their decisions to the public. And it's kind of like this old idea, you know, you, like people, I think in contract law, like Lon Fuller said, the purpose of contract is to help people work things out. Like the purpose of writing down a contract is so you go through the process of thinking through every item of the contract. And I feel like, you know, a decision maker writing reasons or a government making a decision, that process of writing the reasons and making the decision that process should help make the decision better. Because hopefully if you can't write the decision and rationalize it, it's because you're getting to the, a bad outcome, right? And what we wanna avoid is bad outcomes. And so I think I have a healthy skepticism about it, but I, my hope or my ideal is that the law provides a constraint around that so that we actually get to better decisions, better policies and more transparency. I'm a big fan of transparency. Maybe that's very Eastern European of me. <laughs> Interesting. I, I can talk and talk about that, but I want to spare our audience my... Uh, we'll do it uh, offline, Pula. Yeah, we'll my thoughts on the subject. So, you know what? After 13 years at BLG, I think it's, it's a good job. You know, it's a really great, great, great place to be. You joined Hannon Hodgson LLP this year. I'm sure there are many reasons why you like Hannon Hodgson, why you jo joined Hannon Hodgson. Can you give me one reason why you joined Hannon Hodgson LLP that nobody is likely to think of? Oh. that no one's likely to think of. Yeah, maybe they have amazing catering or something. I don't know. Maybe they give you caviar once a month. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I mean, there's no caviar. Let's just, let me just put that on. <laughs> Even for Polish partners, no caviar? Well, okay, that's presumptuous. That's like presuming that Polish people are like Russian people. Yeah, no, that, we, we like sledge, right? Herring? Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't? So, um, I mean, it was it, it was a very difficult decision to change firms after 13 years. I, I really, I am extremely grateful for my time at BLG, my colleagues and everything else. And I like the truth is it just, I felt I'm a, maybe this is also like a weird immigrant kid thing. I'm kind of, I'm a bit risk averse about stuff. Um, and, and, you know, the decision to make a drastic change in my career is not, not an easy one for someone like me. Um, but I, I, sometimes when I have a difficult decision to make, what I ask myself is what would I regret not doing? And I feel like I, I kind of said to myself 10 years from now, if I didn't join Hennon Hutchison, I would be like, what was wrong with you? Like, why didn't you just why didn't you just take this risk and go for it? Like, you know, I think that was really, I had to kind of kick myself in the butt to do that because it is taking me out of my, it is taking me a little bit out of my comfort zone in terms of like, it's easy. I think for all of us, it's easy to have some inertia and, 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 and it's, I think for all of us, it's hard to make change um happen so it was really it was really that thought process like i am going I, i'm gonna look back 10 years from now and be like you know eva why didn't you kick yourself in the butt and just do this 
You know, I know the caliber of people at Hannon Hutchison firsthand, not because I was a client, no. Uh, thank God I, I was never a client of Hannon Hutchison, but I was co-counsel on the matter. So uh, the caliber is out of this world. It's uh, just amazing. So I, I think this is the right question to ask. Am I going to woefully regret the decision of not joining the firm when, when the people around me are going to be uh, that amazing? So you joined Hannon Hutchinson, and I'm sure the profile of your practice has changed a little bit. Is it true? Is, is it the fact? Can you tell us more about the profile of your practice now? Sure. Um, so I think I mean one of the attractions was to continue to kind of be have like a broad barrister like practice. Like I, you know, I maybe it is a bit of a combination of liking the diversity of legal problems and also a bit of a, you know fear of missing out. But I like having a diverse practice and not being not overly specializing. So what do I do now? So we talked about public law and constitutional law. So I'm still doing a lot of a lot of that. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's fabulous. Um, I've always had an estates practice and estates litigation practice um, that I, I kind of fell into at BLG and really enjoyed mostly because I like the combination of kind of old English case law and the kind of emotional elements of managing families through very difficult problems. Um, you know, like I, I think of myself as someone who has good EQ and empathy and I can, can handle that kind of stuff. Um, the stuff that I've added now to my practice really is I'm doing investigations, which are really interesting, really interesting to do investigations. Uh, you know, helping out uh, company, both for companies or institutions or representing individuals who are the subject of an investigation. And I like, you know, one of the reasons that I love litigation is every case is like a window into a universe that you would never normally know anything about. It's kind of like a, you know, a very in-depth New Yorker article. And an investigation is kind of a window into a problem or a set of problems in a certain industry. And then investigating that, finding out if there's a problem or not a problem, and then recommending solutions to it, which again, going back to my like public policy, I want to fix things, I want to make the world a better place kind of thing is really nicely aligns with that. And then the other thing that I do now that I, I hadn't done uh, before is uh, both be, being on the plaintiff side and the defense side of civil uh, civil sexual assault claims. Um, and so, and I think that's just kind of that is very much kind of just aligns with the other work that the firm the firm does. Um, and that again, also you know, very interesting legal problems, lots of uh, emotional issues as well. So. Um, it's great. I like, you know, I'm, I am the kind of person who's going to be, I think, a lifelong learner and I don't like being bored and I like being challenged. So it's, it's working really nicely for me. You know, when I spoke with Danielle uh, on the show, we talked about the convergence of criminal practice and civil practice and Hannah Hutchinson being one of the epicenters of this convergence. Are you one of the signs of this convergence, for example, when you talk about civil sexual assault? 
and the rest of the firm doing criminal sexual assault. Is this the convergence that Daniel was talking about? I think I think that's I think that's probably the most obvious example. Uh, but I think investigation work is another example of that. Uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of situations also where you know we live in a a very highly regulatory state where you really have kind of like the criminal law, then you have like regulatory law, whether it's disciplinary proceedings or human rights tribunals, and then you have the private law. And so like, I kind of do the civil and regulatory work and a lot of the criminal lawyers do the criminal and regulatory work. And we kind of meet in the middle on a lot of these things. And, you know, any, any potential, a lot of our potential cases can start at one end, but over the years may have to work their way through the system and other ends, or maybe something starts as a regulatory issue, but it also raises criminal concerns and may lead to a civil suit, right? Like a lot of the problems that come up in society today will be addressed through many different legal mechanisms over time. And so I think one thing that our firm does really well is it's able to immediately identify how a certain problem can lead to all those issues and how you need to really proactively think about those issues when the problem comes through the door right and if you only have like a uh, if you have a much narrower lens you might miss that there may be all these downstream problems in the future so I was always puzzled when lawyers said that they did investigation work, uh, not because the lawyers did something wrong, but because I'm obviously uh, clueless about this. And I want to clear this up because I think you gave me a clue right now. So when I think of lawyers and clients hiring lawyers, I always think of hiring lawyers as the last resort because of the extremely high rates or fees. And when lawyers say I do investigation work, to me, it sounds like the lawyer is investigating the facts. But I think you just gave me a clue that you uh, give advice to participants of investigations. You give advice to targets of investigation or you give advice to investigators. Is this the correct interpretation of investigation work done by lawyers? So sometimes, the, like a lot of the time, lawyers will act as the investigator themselves. So for example, you know, you, you have a company and they get a whistle, whistleblower complaint, right? A lot of companies now have whistleblower mechanisms or they have ombudsmen and they receive a, they receive a complaint and it may be a very significant complaint about either, you know, some kind of corporate misfeasance or maybe some kind of a practice just being off at a corporation. And the, either the management or the board of a corporation will want to retain a lawyer to get to the bottom of this. Like, you know, it, is, is this a real issue? Is this a real problem? Is there evidence that this is happening? And if it is, how are we going to address it? Even either, you know, it maybe it's like a singular complaint against a singular person, or is it a larger complaint of like, our systems aren't working properly here. Um, <clears throat> and then making recommendations on how to fix that. And so, so there's that aspect where the lawyer acts as investigator. And then there's the aspect of a client gets, 
you know, a client finds out you're the subject of an investigation, it is alleged that you've done X, Y, and Z, we want to interview you. And then we will advise the client and prepare them for the interview or tell them they should think, you know, whatever needs to be done to, to handle that investigation. So it's, it's a very, you know, it's, a, I think, a kind of a unique process because it's not, it's not the usual adversarial process we're used to in, um, in, in our civil, civil system, right? It's much more of an inquisitorial process. We talked about uh, quite a few heavy matters, heavy things, very serious things. What part of law practice makes you feel light? What part of law practice makes you smile? Is it the parties? Is it the caviar? Is it the limousines? <laughs> yeah, no caviar, <laughs> no limousines. Um, uh, I mean, you know, I think what's I think what's really nice about the practice of law is it's actually a pretty small bar here in Toronto, and the longer you practice the more you see familiar faces, the more you know, you go out to an event and you catch up with people and you've been opposite side of files together, but you know each other or you know each other and then you're opposite files with each other. And I think that, I think you wouldn't necessarily think that the Toronto litigation bar can, it, like you would think it's too big and too disparate and, um, to really kind of have meaningful colleagues or meaningful friendships, but it really isn't. It's, I think it's kind of a one degrees of separation kind of place. And it is nice to see people like, you know, Jenny and I went yesterday to an event, uh, a Malaparte hosted by another law firm. And it was just great to like run into people that we haven't seen in a while and talk about the case we had together three years ago. Right. It's, it's, it's I think there are some really nice parts of the bar and I, I like recommend to like young associates and summer students to to be you know to look out for those opportunities by joining professional associations and also for being patient that that, that is going to happen. Eva this has been a true pleasure for me today. I really enjoyed this conversation and I can't wait to catch up for coffee or lunch or dinner. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Have a great afternoon and weekend.